And welcome to this gathering of Wyoming Church of Christ. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. You know, after church service today, if you do your shopping here in Wyoming or Erin Affair or wherever you go, as you interact with folks, what if you asked them their thoughts, their opinions concerning who Jesus is? Well, I would guess that most would have a pretty positive response. They would say that he's tranquil, he's gentle, and he's calm. He's the Prince of Peace, isn't he? This is a Jesus who doesn't demand, a Jesus who doesn't convict, who doesn't judge sin. He surely doesn't demand holiness from his people. He's like the best version of your laid-back uncle. Just happy to chew the fat and hang out with you and hope you have a great day. Now, as you're standing there in Aldi or Kohl's with your food in your hand, what if your response to that person was, hey, thanks for sharing. And you know, some of the stuff that you said was, is, is definitely true. But can I, can I just read you a passage from the Bible of what Jesus actually said? Just real quick. Oh, yeah, 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 sure, yeah, go, go, go on, go on. And then you read today's passage. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. I would imagine the average person on the coast would recoil at hearing this. They might say, boy, I don't know that Jesus. That's more like jihadist Jesus than anything. And you know, fair enough, because isn't one of the titles for Jesus, I mean, after all, isn't he the Prince of Peace? Didn't he tell us earlier on in Matthew, blessed are the peacemakers? Isn't he the Messiah who came to bring peace between God and man? So why do we have this Prince of Peace saying, look, under no circumstances should you think that I came to bring peace. I didn't. I came to bring the sword. What are we to make of this? Like, honestly, what are we to do with Jesus' words here? Should we just tuck them away and maybe focus on all the Verses that talk about his love and his compassion. And all those verses are true, by the way. And I suppose you could do that. You could focus on all the lovey-dovey passages about Jesus, but then you're still left with this verse awkwardly staring you in the face where Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring the sword. So what do we make of it? What do we do with this? Here's the deal. 
the message of the gospel is divisive. It cuts. It divides. For some, the gospel is going to be heard as wonderful news of God's mercy directed towards sinners. For others, the gospel is going to be heard as the most subversive, narrow-minded message of all time. On the one hand, the gospel unites believers with Jesus Christ and each other. On the other, it cuts, it splits, even to the bonds of family. As unnerving as that is, we're still called to confess Jesus openly and we should anticipate some conflict, but we're to bear that cross for the glory of God. Friends, those are just some essential marks of Christian living. So that's where I want to do today. I want to talk about Essential marks of Christian living. First is confession, and we'll see that in verses 32 and 33. Second is conflict, and we'll see that in verses 34 and 37. And last, cross-bearing. And then we'll just put a little tailpiece at the end, compensation. You don't get paid, sorry for all that stuff, but you know. I guess I do, but anyway. Yeah, so we just have to throw that in there because I want to get through chapter 10 told April last night, I said, I'm kind of looking forward to getting into chapter 11 and getting back to some narrative about, you'll see it, if you look, read ahead like Jesus and all that stuff, because it's like every week, it's like, you know, the military here, you know, it's like the few, the proud, the Christians, and if you're not, <laughs> I just, but the text calls for it, right? Like at the same time, in God's providence, as we go through chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Like, I didn't set the text this way. I didn't write the book. But I, I have to be faithful to what it says. And, and believe me, that's one of the beauties, by the way. Remember what I said last week? That our truth is, God's truth is an open truth. Like, we don't try to hide it, sort of, you know, like cults do and sort of reel you in and then spring on you at the end. Like, God's word addresses Every area of life right now that like you think, oh, well, you know, God, th- this book, it's just, it's outdated. It's written by man. It doesn't have any answers to life. Oh, contraire. Everything right now that's going on with this pandemic of the coronavirus, why do we have sin and viruses and disease? Sorry, why do we have vi- viruses and disease and all these things? It's because of sin. Well, what about, you know, some of the things in the media? Why do we have, everything, you can read through the lens of scripture, friends. It gives an answer. And it gives a way better answer than anybody in the world. Than anybody in the world's gonna answer and say, oh, well, you know. Because what does, what does, what do people say in the world? They say, well, this is just how life is. You know, let's just gotta, we gotta buck up under it. The fatalist says that, right? It is what it is. That's encouraging. <laughs> Woohoo! Who wants to sign up for that one? Right? And, and, and what does the evolutionist say? Well, this is, just, you know, this is just part of life, and you know, only the strong will survive after all, so, you know. Oh, that's great. 
Is that the answers that you want? Like, I'm not content with that. This is what drove me to be a Christian, by the way. Because life stinks half the time and you look around and people die and people get diseases. My best friend, I remember when I, we were, my best friend died, got hit by a car when I was 12. Right? And, and so like, I want answers. Why am I here? Why, why, why do we live? Why do we die? Why, why, what are we here for? And, I, and at the time, I was like sinking down Darwin's theory of evolution, right? Because I, I needed some, I needed to make sense of life. And I was kind of like, well, if that's just it and it just, things just happen, well, stuff that. I don't want that. And anyway, the second law of thermodynamics is everything goes from a state of order to chaos anyway, so that contradicts itself. So that's, I don't want that. Ignore what I just said, by the way. That's just me, my own, whatever old I was at the time. So, the Bible has answers, but, but we, have to, we have to look at this book and say, okay, well, let's not, let's not try to just focus on the, all the passages that are easy to swallow. Today's, uh, today, and even chapter 10, it hasn't been like, it's not, an easy, it's not an easy chapter to swallow, is it? It talks about family drama. It talks about if, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. I mean, that stuff... You know, th- this is hard stuff, but, but again, that, that's why, as long as I'm the pastor here, by the way, I will be committed to preaching through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, books of the Bible. The only way to preach God's word. Biblical exposition. So, with that said, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this gathering of your people. Lord, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, it's interesting. In these 10 verses we're looking at today, you, you might have picked up themes that we've already covered in the past few weeks. Did you notice that? Family drama comes up again. So does suffering and persecution. Also the topic of receiving and supporting missionaries. If we look in the rearview mirror, Matthew has already addressed these issues. But sometimes certain points need to be repeated, don't they? Certain lessons must be brought to our minds again so we can feel the gravity of them and not forget the type of world we live in either. That said, let's look at the first mark of Christian living, found in verse 32. Matthew 10, verse 32, says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You know, given the gloomy predictions that Jesus just talked about, it's pretty natural to have a level of fear. There'd probably be some pressure to sort of live your life as a secret, undercover Christian. I mean, to confess Christ is to identify with him. And to identify with him could be to put your life on the line. So you can picture the rationale of someone living in fear. They're in a sticky situation, and in their head, they, th- they begin thinking, well, it's not that I'm denying Jesus or anything. I'm simply trying to live a life with less controversy. 
After all, Jesus is still king of my heart. God still got my number. He knows me. But according to Jesus, the disciples must confess him publicly. And this public profession isn't restricted just to them, by the way. You see what the Bible says? Whoever. See that there in your Bible? Whoever confesses Jesus will confess. Whoever denies Jesus will deny. If we're not public about our allegiance to him, we shouldn't expect him to be public about his allegiance to us. Now, now this will vary in boldness from believer to believer. I get that. But a basic benchmark to know rather someone is a follower of Jesus or not is to see if they acknowledge him publicly. Which begs the question, begs the question, doesn't it? Does everyone in your sphere of life, if you're a Christian, by the way, if you claim to be a Christian, does everyone in your sphere of life, whatever that is, work or school or you know, wherever your stomping grounds are, you know, does everyone in your sphere of life know that you are a Christian? I, I don't mean do they know that you go to church on Sundays. Like, good for you, right? Yay, go waste your time in their minds. And, and, I, and I don't think that's a win. What I'm saying is, does your life supply enough visible evidence that yes, in fact, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Like, could I have a chat with your coworker or your boss this week and say, did you know that so-and-so is a Christian? Really? No idea. Or could I sit down with your classmates and say, did you know that so-and-so is a Christian? Basically, the way you live your life is a confession to who Jesus is. Have you ever been tempted to be included in a particular group or a crowd? And in order to be included in this group, you feel this pressure to... This particularly happens when you're in school. So for those of you that are you know, 12 to 18, you particularly feel this pressure to sort of downplay or maybe deny the fact that you're a Christian because there you are at your break for morning tea and everyone's having a chat. And if they, your friends found out that you were a Christian, I mean, what would they say? What would they think? And maybe they would exclude you. Maybe they would want to argue with you. Maybe, who knows, right? And so you feel that pressure to think, oh, maybe it's best if I just keep my mouth shut, right? And, and can I tell you this, those of you that are that age, that dissipates in the sense that, that pressure dissipates in the sense that the older you get, the more you realize how awkward you really are and everyone else is anyways. And we all have our idiosyncrasies, so who cares? But that pressure at the same time doesn't go away because you feel that pressure when, say, you're at work one day and the way in which your company can get ahead and all your coworkers are doing this is just exaggerate the truth a little bit. Just cheat. Just cut corners. Because if you do that, 
you can, get a, you can get a whole lot more money. After all, don't you want to take care of your family? I mean, if this coronavirus turns even more pear-shaped, you might be out of a job and you might be out of money, so you can justify it in your head, right? I mean, why, why not just cut a, cut a corner here or there? Because that's, after all, I mean, you're looking after your family. You see, it seems like at the time it might be normal or okay, but your life is a confession. Does that make sense? When you feel that strain, remember Jesus' words. Nothing in this life is more important than he is. And if you follow Christ, you don't sit back in silence. You make it known to others that you belong to him. Do you understand this, friends? Whenever something is of tremendous value to you, whenever you cherish something because of its beauty or its power, there is inevitable longing that you draw other people's attention to it so they too can share your high regard for it. Oh, you have to see this new fill-in-the-blank. It's awesome. You want to draw others. It, it overflows out of your life. That confession of faith is a natural thing. You have to hear about this. There's nothing in this life which you may gain at the cost of sacrificing our loyalty for Jesus. You understand? We dare not miss to that Jesus, so that's a positive way of saying it, right? That, that you have this, that this treasuring of Christ overflows. I guess we can, we can flip it and, and then sort of a negative way to say this. We dare not miss that Jesus claimed that one's eternal destiny depended upon their confession of him. Basically, who you confess Jesus to be in this life determines where you'll spend the afterlife. There's a positive and a negative way of looking at that, isn't there? True mark of a Christian, though, true mark of Christian living is an open confession to who Jesus is. Second, Mark comes in verse 34 and following. Look at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. All righty. Well, first thing to note here is that the sword is a metaphor. It's not literal. I mean, think about the incident when Jesus was arrested and how Peter drew his sword and slashed off the ear of the high priest's servant. Right? Jesus doesn't say, well done, Pete, knuckle bump, bro. You were listening back in chapter 10. Next time, go for the head, right? You know, Thanos, you shouldn't have gone there. You should have gone for the head, Thor, right? No, Jesus says, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. So the sword is a metaphor to illustrate something that splits and divides. Hence the example he gives Right? If context in verse 35, he says, For I have come, say the same language, right? I've come and then I've come. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter in law against her mother in law. 
the message of Jesus is indeed a message of peace, but it is a message that divides between those who embrace it and those who reject it. That's why Jesus wants his disciples to know that, yes, it is true, he came to bring peace, but the kind of peace that he brings does not mean that the Christian is going to experience an absence of hostilities in this world. The sword offers a shocking image of conflict and suffering. So the first mark of Christian living is confession. The second is conflict. Conflict. Again, let's pick up in verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now this verse isn't an attack on family relationships. When you read through the Bible, you'll quickly discover that the family unit is highly valued. I mean, think of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, right? But you hear what Jesus is saying. The dividing line between those who follow him and those who reject him would run even through families. J.C. Ryle put it this way, commenting on this verse. He said this, We are not to think it strange if the gospel rends asunder families and even estrangement between the nearest relations. Jesus is warning us here to expect both individually and corporately the gospel to bring about opposition when it is embraced truly. I love the qualifier that he gives there. When the gospel is embraced truly. I wonder what that would look like for you. Like, it's not as if, you know, you're going to catch up with your old man this week or your mom, and they're going to sit you down and say, it's either me or Jesus, kid. Right? That probably won't happen if your mom and dad are even still alive. So what does this look like for you practically? Well, Jesus answers that in the next verse. It's about your heart. Who you truly value. Where your ultimate loyalty lies. Well, look at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What a claim. This guy is either a messiah or a maniac, a savior or a psychopath. Who makes such claims like this? Jesus does. And he demands total allegiance. He points his finger at every one of us this morning. I hope you can feel that from this text. He points his finger at every one of us this morning and he says, nothing can rival me. Nothing in this world, nothing in your life can rival me. I must be first. Your health must come second in priority. Your wealth must come second 
your desires, your plans for your life, all must come second. Even your family must come second. Jesus is saying even the most fundamental relationships in society will be turned upside down because of him. He demands a loyalty that takes precedence, that transcends the loyalty we owe to our family. We are to love Jesus far more than anyone here on earth. Now that's a message that causes conflict. That's a message that divides, is it not? But it's a mark of Christian living. John Bunyan, the famous pastor, theologian, author, knew this firsthand. The authorities of his day told him to quit preaching the gospel. But he said, I cannot quit preaching because God has called me to preach. And they said, if you preach, we'll throw you in prison. And so he said to himself, if I go to prison, who will care for my family? But how can I close my mouth when God has called me to preach? And so he committed his family to the care of God and was obedient to the call of God and preached. And as a result, they threw Bunyan in prison. And since then, by the way, he's blessed millions of families because it was there he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. But listen to what he said. He said, The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship I thought my blind one might undergo would break my heart into pieces. So it would have been very easy for Bunyan to rationalize in his head and to say, I have a blind child. I need to take care of my children. Hey, Jesus understands. God knows my heart. I'm not really denying him in my heart. I just have to look after my family. This is a guy that valued his family. Can you hear, can you hear the language there? And, but this is a guy who valued Jesus more and the truth. And God provided for them too, his family, by the way. Lord doesn't hang you out to dry. God provided for them. And in God's providence, as Bunyan was in prison, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, which you have, if you haven't read it, I encourage all of you to read that. See, a marks of a Christian living is confession, but it's that confession that lands you in conflict. And lastly, cross-bearing. Cross-bearing. Verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will find it. This is the first mention of the cross in Matthew's gospel. It's interesting. But what's it connected to? It's connected to the disciples and those who chase after Jesus, isn't it? You don't take up your cross. When Jesus said this, the disciples knew immediately 
what he was talking about, they would have shuddered. He was talking about a cruel execution. The phrase, a cross to bear, though, has become sort of sanitized contemporary language. People will say, oh, man, this teenager of mine, he is my cross to bear. Your mother-in-law, she is my cross to bear. Your crummy car that's a lemon is your cross to bear. Or a teacher that drives you crazy. Or your neighbor or your boss, the guy who works next to you. You know, sorry to say, those things are not your cross. They might be annoyances of living in a fallen, sinful world, but it's not, it's not what Jesus is talking about here. When Jesus said, take up your cross, the disciples knew immediately he was talking about a brutal death. Especially these guys, minus Judas Iscariot, were all from Galilee. And very recently, there had been an insurrection in Galilee led by a guy named Judas, not Judas Iscariot, Judas of Galilee. And Judas had gathered a band together and decided to throw the Romans out. And the Romans won. And the Romans crushed Judas and his insurrection. And the Roman general, Barius, wanted to teach the Jews a lesson. So he crucified over 2,000 Jews. And he put their crosses up and down all the roads of Galilee. So everywhere the people went, they saw them hanging on these crosses along the roadside. And every Jew that was crucified carried the cross beam for his own execution on his back and he marched to the cross. And these Galileans had seen all of that. If we lived through that, or we would be so much different. I think even something like the coronavirus is a, bit, is a litmus test to watch how people are going to respond to uncertainty. That's not a rebuke, by the way. I'm just saying, like, we're, we're, you see it, right? Shut the AFL game down. Like, it's, and those are, by the way, those are, I'm, not, I'm not mocking those things. I'm just saying, like, you, you, you see people panic. You see when tragedy strikes, people go, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, we have no idea what it's like to sort of see another country, like, imagine if, like, Putin conquered Australia and then, like, you know, a bunch of, some dude from, some, you know, guy from Wagga Wagga or Wagga or whatever, like, tried to say, let's fight Putin, and then they crushed him, and they, we had, everywhere we walk around the coast, you see, like, dead bodies hanging around. Can't relate to that, right? But we would know firsthand, if Jesus said, take up your cross, we'd go, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that sight. We wouldn't think of it as a nice little neck charm that we wear or a little sanitized little piece of wood that we hang at church. We would know it as a horrific death. That's very, by the way, shameful. If you had a family member that was crucified, stripped down, carried their cross, beaten to a pulp, nailed, like that, that's shameful. You're associated with your family. You, you have an affinity with your family. You know, typically as, I was thinking about this this week, typically, I, I think the Asian culture still carries that a little bit. Um, that they have, and I think it's probably a good thing, that there's an affinity with the family. Typically, white Westerners, we're our own family, right? Pathetic. You know, we're sort of our own individual autonomous, et cetera, et cetera. But like, particularly for your, like, 
some people in the Middle East and Asian countries, like there's the family unit, there's, there's a shame base, there's an honor and a shame culture. Did, did you track with me? And, and for one of your family members to be crucified wouldn't just be like, oh, poor bugger. You would have an affinity with your uncle that's, you're walking past on the road here seeing crucified. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, do you, do you see how like shuddering these words would be? Take up your cross and follow me. It's interesting. The prospect Jesus holds out to anyone who would follow him is this. <laughs> Which doesn't mean a true follower of Jesus will literally be a martyr, by the way. But you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. The demand of full surrender, death to self, as it were. In other words, the Christian lives in a paradox. He or she can only find life by losing it and they can only live by dying to self. This might seem negative, right? But it is what Jesus says. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. That's a whole lot more than reducing it to just believe that God loves you, walk an aisle, come up here in the front, sign your name on a card, pray a prayer, you're in. That has been reduced. Salvation has become quite uh, not costly. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, yeah, you know, we, don't, we don't gain anything by our repentance, but our repentance coming to Christ is a mark of the fact that we actually are in Jesus. Does that, does that make sense? It's, it's a denying, it's, a, it's of self. But again, maybe all this seems super negative. And you say, is there any positive, right? I mean, is being a Christian just being harassed by the world and having to confess before men and forsaking your family and giving your life? Do we do anything else besides great problems in the world for people? Well, don't worry, it ends positively in verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives him who sent me, right? The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So not everyone is going to refuse the message of the disciples. Some are going to believe. Some are going to receive them. Some are going to receive the Lord, as it were. This week, when you go out and you represent Jesus Christ, make that confession, as it were, and share the gospel, the people who believe it are the ones who receive you. And the ones that receive you are the ones who receive the Lord, in other words. And the ones... Receiving the Lord are the ones who are, were being sent out. Do you, know, you know what? You see what this is saying? You become an agency of men receiving God himself. In other words, it's not like you're God or anything like that, but your message, the message that, it's not your message, it's the gospel message. And if they're receiving that, they're actually not just receiving you, but the Lord himself. And, and can I encourage you with this? 
if you are actually going to preach the true whole counsel of God, the true message, it is going to be like a sword. It's going to split. It's going to cut. But not everyone, because kind of the mood of this text, like, you know, oh, man, take up your cross. Oh, your family's going to hate you. Oh, you know. People will receive Christ. God will open up hearts. That's how it has to happen, by the way. Book of Acts, how does Lydia get saved? She chose Jesus. Wrong. God opened her heart to the gospel. And the Lord sends us out to make a confession. We're going to cop it, but the Lord has his own here on the coast and broadly in Australia and everywhere else that he is saving for his glory, coronavirus or not. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chapter of Matthew, this whole chapter 10. This has been quite unnerving at points and but yet encouraging on other fronts. And Lord, we, we pray that we would be faithful to you. We know that, as Andrew prayed earlier, Lord, nothing catches you by surprise. You're sovereign over all things. So Lord, help us to make clear a public confession. Help us to rightly understand what it means to know and to follow you and to share that with others. And Lord, to if we cop it or if they receive it, uh, that's the results are up to you. But help us to be faithful. Yes, this is in Jesus' name. Amen. So.